Hello, Valparaiso. This is Allison Schutte, Willow Walsh, and Reagan Skaggs. And you're listening to Welcome Project Radio. The Welcome Project collects first-person stories and pairs them with facilitated conversation to help participants forge stronger ties within and across communities. We vision a world in which people are curious about and actively seek to engage those who are different from themselves. We are proudly underwritten by Asana Yoga Center and Roots Market Cafe, two great ways to feel good this season. They're located online at asanacenter.com and rootsmarketcafe.com. And thanks to Kelly and Michael Marakna, who believe in supporting diversity, learning, and growth. The music is provided by WVLP's very own Paul Schreiner. Thanks, Paul. So today we bring you two stories from the Welcome Project's archive. So I had some thoughts. They have been newly edited and added to the website. So I know that we haven't done them before, which is pretty exciting. And the thought process behind this, the first one in the first story titled Outside In Instead of Inside Out, a former resident of Gary sort of talks about who sort of owns the responsibility of sort of making Gary this focal point of Northwest Indiana and, and the way that we had seen it in the 60s. Like, like where is that onus? And then in the second one, to have a yacht in Valpo, the speaker talks a little bit about, um, well, I mean, I think the title says it all, to have a yacht in Valpo. I mean, I, I think there's some, um, you know, talks of classism and sort of economic disparities that can be sort of shocking. And I don't know. I just I thought these two stories sort of wove together re- in a really interesting way in terms of um, personal responsibility towards our neighbors, and I don't know, like like what it takes to be a good community together. So yeah, so that's why I chose these two. Great. So let's listen to our first story for the day. Then this is outside in instead of inside out. I truly believe the only way that Gary will ever be successful again is if it happens from the outside in instead of inside out. The decline in the, uh, and the, the, the beginning stages of the white flight, if you may, was in 1967 when Mayor Hatcher was elected, the first you know, African-American mayor of a major city in Gary. So at that point it began, the first, let's say, five or six years, seven years, it was steady but not staggering. Etno, it, it was almost hard for you to come home at any point during the day, any day of the week, and not see a moving truck. People were moving out left and right, one by one, in groves. When South Lake Mall became, uh, came into existence, I believe, around 72 or 73, one after another were moving their business to Maryville. And that's, so you've seen just a reversal. What was here was moving to Maryville. The businesses were moving to Maryville. So, yeah, there was not only just the white flight, but there was the green flight with the merchants taking their money in their business. And more importantly, what killed Gary was losing that tax structure. Because when you lose business, you lose tax structure, and you lose your ability to be able to fund things properly. The only way I truly think that this problem can be fixed is if they reach out to the same very people who left it, in my opinion, it's a it's a real sore spot for me, but it's a lot of the same people who created the issues 30 and 40 years later need to step up and help fix the issues. I think that if you go and you reach out to the Maribels and the Crown Points and the Munsters and the Highlands and the Holberts and the folks that surround the community of Gary. Because, again, my philosophy is that Gary was, is, and always will be the heart and soul of Northwest Indiana. I mean, we're sitting here on one of the greatest natural resources in the entire world. 
I challenge anybody to go out and find a, a natural body of water that's as beautiful as what we have here. And again, our proximity to Chicago and, and demographically and, and the jobs and what we can offer. I mean, we have some of the highest wages in the nation here in Northwest Indiana. We're very fortunate to live in an area that's a strong unionized area that's created wages for folks like it has. And whether you are a proponent of unions or not, it's a reality. We live in an area that's very successful uh, and provides well for a lot of families. So again, if you reach out to those folks in those communities and look for ways to be creative, uh, ask for help, those are the types of things that it's going to take to create a way of thinking. It's not so much financial, but it's getting people to think that it can happen. Part of the biggest hurdle, in my opinion, is, is that people don't believe it can change. You've got to be able to sell them a bill of goods, if you may, that things can change and it will change with their help. This is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio with me, Allison Schutte, Willow Walsh, and Reagan Skaggs. And you're listening to us on WVLP 103.1 FM and streaming online at WVLP.org. And later in the show, I'll be telling you a little bit about our pledge drive, but I'll drop the hint here that you can provide some welcome support to this station by donating at WVLP.org backslash support. So... Here we are. It's been a little while, maybe since we did a Flight Paths story. And for those of you maybe who don't know, Flight Paths is the Welcome Project initiative that looks at oral history in Northwest Indiana, specifically centered on Gary, Indiana during the 50s, maybe through the 80s or 90s, the rise of the civil rights movement, uh, open housing, then white flight, the growth of the suburbs and deindustrialization, which in our particular region has meant a huge disinvestment in the city of Gary, which is ongoing to this day. So we have a former resident who grew up in the neighborhood of Etna, which we know from other stories is kind of the scrappy working class neighborhood. And he's offering his opinion on what it might mean for us to see uh, Gary come back with some more in, I don't know, he doesn't use the word investment. In fact, he seems to hesitate a little bit about using economics as the term for change, but he's definitely talking about responsibility for the city and who's responsible for it and whether that scope of responsibility goes beyond the boundaries of the city itself. So um, we'll begin as we usually do, we'll be in conversation about the story, things that we noticed about it, things we want to amplify about what we heard the speaker caring about, and then we'll slowly begin to connect it to what we notice of our current lives as Northwest Indiana residents. So Reagan, do you want to start today with anything that stood out to you from this story? Yeah, I really like The first time I listened to the story, I took issue kind of with the, maybe not the message, but the tone of the speaker at first. I thought that he was kind of, I had the the idea like, oh, it kind of sounds like a victim blaming type of thing, kind of blaming Gary for having business disinvestment. But by the end of it, I came to really feel like he was calling in like the communities surrounding Gary, like the people who had mostly left Gary to kind of come together and find a solution. So I, I, came in with the understanding like oh this might be another example of like really poorly done patriarchal style like activism and it seems like 
no, actually, this is this is a call in and we should um, consider our responsibility as neighbors to this community that we have all actively disenfranchised. Well, what about you? His story made me think about, you know, like like right now in businesses, when you go in, sometimes there's like a little flyer on the door and it's like, please be patient with us. We're severely understaffed right now. We're doing our best. And it reminded me, like, you know, Erica went to work um, this past Sunday and five people had called off. And that's more than half of the people that were supposed to be there during the most important time. But it's like when the customers, when they're frustrated, are they getting mad at the five people who aren't there? Or are they getting mad at the four people who did show up and who are like trying their best to get things through the door? And so for me, I feel like the story of Gary intertwines with that so much. And what I appreciate about this speaker is that he sort of calls that out. It's like, you know, I I often think like if there was sort of like a a digital Google map sort of archive of Gary and you could see the history of every single house. And if people could see all of the people who are currently living in Munster and Highland who have left their house and Gary there to sort of die, like... I feel like the onus would be, you know, more put on the people who are living in Valparaiso and the surrounding area who actually created, you know, how the resident area looks in Gary right now. And so I just, I don't know, it it made me think of that. Like, I I appreciate that he's putting the responsibility on the parties who are responsible, which I think is nice. Yeah, I think that's actually a super helpful analogy. I've never quite thought about that, but It is strange how the people who actually pull their weight and stick it out are the ones that then ultimately (laughs) get the burden of people's frustration and anger. I think that's a really helpful (laughs) analogy because we could do better at trying to see who's not in the room as opposed to just who is in the room and throwing our feelings around at them. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of hearing like or I don't know if this is interesting but Reagan you had said like something about the tone of the speaker initially had you thinking his story went one way versus another way and there is a sort of detachment in his voice maybe and sometimes I think it's useful to reflect on what the tone of a speaker might be adding to their story uh you know I I know from other parts of this storyteller um, in different interviews and that we have up on the website, which you can find at welcomeproject.belpo.edu. And you can just look under flight paths categories. He has a, he has moved himself from, from Gary. And I think at the time of the interview, he was actually in Porter, Indiana, um, and was reflecting on how he felt like his experience of neighbors there was very, what is the word? Like, almost like clinical, like there was no real social life between them. And what he remembers of his growing up in Etna and Gary is that, you know, the kids would run in and out of each other's houses. And what this refrain we've heard before of like everybody being each other's parents, everyone had an eye out for each other. And I think the interesting thing about Etna is like, it was built up together. So like, the families that first lived there were the families that made that neighborhood. And so they intimately knew each other, like as the neighborhood actually took on its own life, as opposed to transplanting into a a developed neighborhood that has more of that suburban privacy feel where you're supposed to honor the boundaries as opposed to like 
run through each other's yards. And I think some of the tone that he has in this story is a little bit of that nostalgia is maybe not quite the right word because it seems stronger than that, like a um, sadness or grief for losing that sort of social life of the neighborhood or the more sterile, that's the word I was looking for, sterile life of the neighborhood he was currently in. And this somewhat sense of, I don't know, if I don't know, I might be putting words into his mouth now, like, or projecting feelings onto him, but some sense of guilt that he didn't feel like he could stay, like he did have to leave. And now it's about like, okay, now it has to be outside in. I myself am an outsider. And I, I do wonder a little bit about that. And, and I wonder, Reagan, if there's something to speak to there, like, what does it mean to or does it have to be a balance between like like resource like resourcing the people inside so that the people inside can create recreate the city they want as opposed to the outside in that always makes me a little bit nervous when people talk about you know outside in so the 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 residents of Gary who stayed there where's their voice in deciding what happened. I mean, I think that's that's kind of the key question, right? And that's kind of where I was beginning to be concerned um, when the speaker, when I first began listening to the speaker um, and kind of what a lot of people would refer to as like that patriarchal, like white activism of the like father knows best, outsiders know best type of mentality. It is dangerous and it has historically gone really poorly for vulnerable people, which are the people that we're supposed to be helping. But with that, I do think there's a balance of, and again, I am like a white privileged person. So I hope I am not stepping out of bounds here. But from my understanding of like culpability, responsibility, community building, community maintaining, a group of mostly white folks have disenfranchised a mostly black and brown community by leaving and by their, and their leaving has encouraged businesses and commercial things to leave. And the things that bring businesses and other corporate entities back which would bring back a corporate like a tax base a vital tax base would be people like moving back in and reinvesting into the area but how do you do that without gentrifying how do you do that without taking over a minority like especially a racial minority space and making it uninhabitable for that minority like there is some kind of awkward balance there but what I feel like I hear the speaker saying, or at least what I hear the speaker attempting to say, is that there is some responsibility on the part of people who have left to fix the problem that they have created. And I, he doesn't, as far as I can recall, does not list specific like examples of fixing that problem or like rectifying that situation, just recognizing that there should be some kind of onus of a solution on the people who have created the problem. And I think that's like the seed of a good thing. Yeah, and Willow, before I let you jump in, I'm just gonna let our listeners know this is WVLPLP 103.1 FM and streaming online at WVLP.org. We're launching a pledge drive to help raise money to make sure that community-supported radio gets to have the life that it deserves. So during this winter pledge drive, you can become a WVLP sustaining member, which means not just a one-time donation, but a monthly donation. And at the $5 a month level, you can get Paul Schreiner's Couch Music CD. And that that's only going to cost you 16 cents a day. So well worth it. And actually, in fact, I think it's very generous of Paul to um, sell the CDs at such a, a minimal investment. 
at the $10 a month level, you will get a WVLP t-shirt. That's just 33 cents per day for a WVLP t-shirt. And for your $15 month level, or just 50 cents per day, you get both the CD and t-shirt. And that's a combo that is worth shouting about. So go to wvlp.org backslash support and make your sustaining pledge to become a member today. We certainly thank you. Uh, Willow, did you have thoughts on this conversation about, you know, really recognizing that there were that people who left were a contributing factor and therefore ought to be playing a role in helping Gary today. I think there is significant responsibility for the people who left, not necessarily in deciding where the city grows from there, because I don't think the people that haven't been there since like the 60s and 70s really should be raising their voices on like, you know, where, where does Gary go from here? Because there's plenty of people in Gary. There are plenty of nonprofits, activists, people who care, neighbors who know what they want the city to look like. And so they don't need people on the outside sort of mansplaining that to them. Um, but what I think th- that Gary should ask for, and I don't even know if it has enough resources to be able to sort of like delineate this, but I would, I mean, like, I think what would be so beautiful everywhere is like a very passive aggressive, like, oh, looks like, you know, Aunt Sally lived at 938 Main Street in si- like 1967. And oh, look at this, three months after Richard Hatcher was elected, she just suddenly left. And now her now her house is just sitting there in decay for the past four, four decades or something. It's like, I definitely think that it is Aunt Sally's responsibility from her nice estate in Highland now to go ahead and pay for that, maybe that spot there to get renovated, maybe like bulldozed or something. It's just like there is there. Uh, what I think is interesting that the speaker brings up is that there and what our next speaker brings up, too, is that there is just what can seem like an, an infinitesimal amount of wealth in this area and the disparity between the people who are taking their checks from, you know, like the union mill jobs and going to Valparaiso instead of there and Gary, I don't, I don't know. There are just, there are some problems that I'm seeing. And it's like, I just think that there are more ways that we can hold people accountable for the devastation that they did cause thanks to racism. Like, I, I, I don't know. And it's just like, it is kind of hard. Cause it's like, I think there's a there's a specific window that we have for this, right? Because this happened in like the 60s and 70s and sometimes maybe a little bit in the 80s. But it's like, you know, this happened in that time frame and those people are only going to be alive for so long. <laughs> and at a certain point, once it's a, like only their grandchildren are remaining or something, it's like you're going to have a harder time being like, yes, person who didn't live in Gary, who lives in Valparaiso, you need to do this. It's like, I would still be down for helping. But, you know, you're it's, it's like the responsibility aspect of it. It's it's going to be really hard to make people around Gary feel responsible when sort of that crowd of people has sort of died out. Yeah, I feel like you're actually talking about reparations. Um, oh, I guess is, so. Yeah. <laughs> which is super interesting to consider and not necessarily what the storyteller is talking about. Or, I mean, it would be one way of delivering on what the storyteller is talking about. He himself doesn't specifically mention reparations. And I would guess he might get nervous about that because he where does he say it's not so much financial Mm-mm. but it's getting people to think that it can happen and we the three of us might take him to task on that and um, I do want to make sure that we maybe think about what does he what does he mean there does he feel like finance 
follows if people think it can happen. And then what is the it there? He says, he goes on to say, part of the biggest hurdle, in my opinion, is that people don't believe it can change. You've got to be able to sell them a bill of goods, if you may, that things can change and it will change with their help. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm guessing maybe he's talking about the city of Gary. People don't believe the city of Gary can change. And I wonder if you agree on that reading or if um, there's another interpretation. And Reagan, I'll let you jump in first. No, I mean, it does seem to me, like, I agree with your reading. I do think he's referring to Gary. And I think maybe we could also kind of extrapolate that a little bit and also say he is, like, maybe very generally or, like, offhandedly referring to, like, a disenfranchised, like, Black community specifically also, just because I notice, and this is, like, a common rhetorical thing, a lot of times when white folks are speaking about, like, oh, we need to revitalize X community. They're not always talking about like the physical place. They are talking about like the racial demographic that they view as dominating the physical space that they are discussing. So like, we're not just talking about like Southside Chicago. They are also kind of like offhandedly speaking about specifically like Black Americans that live in the Southside of Chicago. So that would be my understanding of it. Yeah, I'm wondering if he doesn't say this and maybe he doesn't even mean this, but you're your thoughts are leading me to think that racism <laughs> is maybe what needs to change. I'm guessing that some of the reasons people don't believe Gary can change is because they have conditioned ideas about Black political and Black economic realities such that there's, you know, there'd be some kind of link with corruption or something like that. Oftentimes racism relies on a sense of a different level of morality or something. So uh, somehow Black people don't care about their spaces as in the same way that white people do. So I wonder if he's noticing at least that part of the problem here is people don't believe Gary will change because they maybe haven't looked into what could be their racist you know, conditioning that hasn't been examined. I mean, wh- why did why did white people move in the first place? At least according to this storyteller, he does. He still takes it back to Mayor Hatcher being elected as the first African American mayor mayor of the city. And we certainly know from Flight Paths research we've done that you know at the time race was definitely like a driving factor in who you thought could be your neighbor. So if your neighborhood is changing, then that's just going to introduce all sorts of discomfort and uncertainty. And because there's also fears around race that media cultivates, then you're going to feel unsafe as well. And so flight then becomes like the only answer. And why would that change? Why would your feelings about that change if you haven't examined those beliefs? Willow, do you have anything that's coming to mind? Yeah, I don't know. I think that aspect of it is really hard to sort of think about. Like, I don't know, from what you're saying, it sounds like maybe the first sort of thing that people have to do is sort of confront why they're leaving. I don't know, that sounds so... That sounds so difficult. And I feel like I'm so much more pessimistic for us as like a species of humans to expect us to get to that point. Like, 
I don't know. I think it's like there's something there's something that just feels like it feels very hard to integrate Gary back into like my mental list of Northwest Indiana cities in a way that I have like, you know, Crown Point or Maryville logged in my brain. Like I it like it, it goes so much deeper for us that I it, it's it's it, like I understand where the speaker is coming from, because what I what I hear him saying is like, this is just a reality for us. And we've accepted it as sort of a reality that keeps happening. And 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 what I hear is more like the physical layout of Gary, like how Gary looks right now when you go through it or like what it has. Like, does it have a mall? Does it have a supermarket? Does it have a Trader Joe's? Like, you know, there's. There's nothing bringing people there unless you're, you know, going to the metro or maybe the library or something. But and and so and like you don't see a big push to do something, you know, it's like there isn't a collective vision that that has been put out for, you know, it's like there isn't like a 2030 Gary vision. You know what I mean? So it's like it's so hard because we're all sort of like siloed and there's no like collective push. But like, I don't know, sometimes I watch those YouTube videos, which I find very satisfying of those guys who just pull over in front of like a house with like he's got like a lawn service company and he just sort of pulls over and he'll do somebody's like entire like block for free just because he wants to and I don't know I think like if we could if there if there are more like structured I don't know I sort of go back and forth it's like is it because people don't have a concrete thing to work for that they don't show up like if we sort of orchestrated like a giant like hey there was white flight here maybe you should come back to the place that your grandparents lived and you know take the house down and mow it down or something you know what I mean like there isn't or if you actually had those concrete asks and you gave that to you know the former residents you know would they just say like f you I don't live there <laughs> like may, maybe I don't know but I, I I I don't know I just it sounds like he has care for Gary and like the speaker and like just feels like there isn't like a collective motion that's sort of like pushing us to do something and I and I think that's what makes sense to me but in in terms of like gentrification and financial I mean I personally yeah I think reparations I guess would describe how I feel a lot better about Gary but it just it makes sense to me for it for it to happen in that sort of way (laughs) this is WVLPLP at 103.1 FM in Valparaiso community supported radio also streaming live from WVLP.org We rely on donations from individuals, businesses, and other organizations in order to continue to spread the word that ongoing, volunteer-driven local media leads to a better community. So please consider supporting this station, especially during our current pledge drive, by visiting our website, wvlp.org backslash support. Donations are tax-deductible, and we would sure appreciate it. This is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio with me, Allison Schutte, Willa Walsh, and Reagan Skaggs. And we've been revisiting a topic for ourselves that we haven't talked about in a while. And I, I feel myself a little rusty on it, but I, I think this storyteller has brought some interesting things to our attention. And I, I really like what you were saying, Willow, about something about the physical appearance. Let's, let's, and I, I do feel like this storyteller would wholeheartedly appreciate that interpretation that he is about really being concrete and helping people see and we could just take that literally see Gary in a a light that they typically don't because when they actually drive through it now they just only see what they 
um, like the flaws as opposed to what you're talking about, somebody having gone through and just like mowed the whole block so that the yards look really great or a particular family taking, like reconnecting to where the family grew up and making a commitment to that particular lot or that house. Um, so I, yeah, I think that's interesting instead of always going to like the underlying, I mean, I can't help but think like the underlying ideology of racism is, is still something that has to be dealt with to see again, but it can't, it can't always be, or maybe it can't be the, the chicken and the egg have to happen at the same time, as opposed to putting one before the other. Is there anything we want to say about this story before we move to the second one? I, I know there's parts of it we haven't really looked at it. It almost feels we'd be doing him wrong if we didn't mention the shout out he gives to the unions here and how labor really made sure that wages for the steel workers, you know, were livable wages for, for families. And so I do think he's recognizing that there's wealth in the area because of that hard work done by the unions. Um, and that that means that there's there is financial <laughs> ability to give back to, to Gary, but either of you want to say more about that before we move? I mean, he makes a good point in terms of like what we have. And I, I, I love that he even calls out like, whether you like it or not, unions are the one that are making sure that you have enough in your paycheck. Like, right, yeah. And, and, and it's, and it's also a call to like, you know, the, the mills are such a big um, employer that it's like they could do something about it. You know, it's like how in the city of Gary, if you work for the city of Gary, you don't have to live in the city of Gary. It's like the mill could like, you could shrink that down. Maybe, maybe you could start like specifically trying to hire people who live in Gary to make sure that that money circulates through the local economy. I mean, I don't know. I just think there's, there's like, there's maybe like a twofold of like who has responsibility for bringing Gary into the, I don't know, like 20, first century or something like like how do we modernize it and i think it's like yeah the white people that left and have a bunch of wealth in a surrounding community have a lot of responsibility to organizing and making sure that, that the the physical appearance of gary is at least squared away and then i mean it's like i think there's so much we could do and and i know that we don't do it in fear of gentrification but i think like easily gary could if we're going to you know, sort of restructure the city in this way. It's like we could just heavily invest in current residents, make sure that housing vouchers are there and that rent prices don't increase, and then heavily invest in low-income affordable apartments. It's like, there's just, I feel like there's ways to make, to, to do it equitably and also to call in, you know, support from the people who should be supporting Gary. <laughs> Reagan, you got anything to say before we move on? I was using the wrong word. It's not... Um... It's paternalistic activism that I was speaking like of a concern about. Yeah, you and, and Willow are, are completely right. And I think that the speaker has the right idea and Willow has the right idea and about doing physical acts. Like I think money also doing physical acts to like, you know, accommodate what has been done and what continues to be done to Gary. And I think you're right too. Like we have to address the underlying racism, but this is a good first step just cleaning up some yards, cleaning up some lawns, like helping some houses get either demolished or like renovated. These are the first steps. These are the solid ideas that we need to start with. Yeah. And we already know that it's like Gary, 
I mean, Mayor Prince has even talked about, oh, we have to call in like the National Guard in order to be able to sort of have enough capacity to take down these older buildings. Like, like there, there, there's a need there. And it's, you know, like it's, I feel like the concrete asks are there. Like we could just do this. I don't know why I'm so frustrated before this holiday, but it just feels like such an easy thing that we could do. Yeah, I think that um, another thing that I've heard talked about is just that the infrastructure of the city of Gary was designed for twice the number of people that currently live there. And so this that would be another really painful decision to make, like as, you know, if we could have a way to bring down the the housing stock that has become too dilapidated to save you know, how do we make choices about which neighborhoods don't get attention from the city so that the remaining neighborhoods can actually receive the benefit of the tax base that's still there. But like, I mean, how do you ask people to give up their neighborhood? Uh, You know, so it is always more complicated, but we have to start and we have to start somewhere. So let's see what our second story here contributes to our understanding of responsibility in the region. This one is called To Have a Yacht in Valpo. So I'm not native to here, but I've been here a while. If I had to say something about, I mean, I love this county. I love Valpo. It's very, very, very nice. They, you know what, all they do is implement more sidewalks, more public, more everything for families and the thing, and that, then that's what they do. But they don't as much, being that I'm on the lower level. I mean, I've been there. I was head chef at the country club. So I made 60 grand, but now I'm making like 60 bucks. Okay, so I've been on both of the, of the, scale. I don't think Valpo does enough to help people like me. They could do more. Day-to-day life, very difficult. Uh, Cold, it's winter, mid-feb, cold, outside quite a bit. I work, so I have some money, but I spend it just being inside to pay for food so I can be somewhere warm. Uh, It's temporary. I'm not really super concerned because it's going to warm up even though today and tomorrow are going to be frigid, zero degrees again. And I've, yeah, I've been sleeping outside quite a while, for, for a while. It's okay though, I'm used to it now. I have a sleeping bag, so I just cocoon myself in that thing. I mean, I got my hats or whatever, my clothes. I stay warm enough. Enough for, I, trust me. If anybody has to worry about hypothermia, I might be one of those people. I keep as warm as I can for as long as I can. Like I said, uh, I'll go to like Run the Clock or I'll go to Cosmos or something just to stay, get some coffee, stay warm. And then when I got to go where I got to go, then that, that's what I got to do. And that's what I do. I get inside my, my sleeping bag and just kind of chill. I make sure that my phone is charged wherever I go. 
so I have some kind of outlet to society or at least just in general life. So I'm kind of huddled up in there and I play solitaire, cribbage. There is enough money around this town where people just give money away, but they don't give it to the right. It's nice if you have a yacht in Valpo. It's nice. If I had money, I'd be giving... <laughs> Anytime I read the marquee, the marquee up here, I bring it. Need laundry, need toilet paper, need... I go to town and country, and I get it, and I bring it. And they're like, where do you sleep tonight? I was like, outside. And they're like, why are you doing this? I said, because other people need help too. This is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio with me, Allison Schutte, Willow Walsh, and Reagan Skaggs. And we're on WVLP LP 103.1 FM and streaming live online at WVLP.org. Today we have two stories from the archives. Uh, actually, this one, To Have a Yacht in Velpo, is a story that was done by an intern with our co-director, Liz Werfel, fairly recently, maybe two, two seasons ago. And it was a, a kind of addition to the Invisible Project initiative. So while I suppose it is, oh, everything is somehow in our archives, this one <laughs> is a bit more contemporary in terms of the storytellers giving their story to us. I wonder, Willow, do you want to start this time with like what stood out to you from from his story? I mean, I think this like for me this weekend, I spent like the whole weekend inside and I oh my gosh, I didn't go to work for like a couple of days. Like I was just like a whole bum and I was complaining every day. And to listen to this man <laughs> talk about sitting outside just like playing games on his phone in his sleeping bag and he's like yeah it's cold it's like I worry about hypothermia but you know just making sure that I've got what I need like it's just like the capacity that he has to deal with the crap that he has to deal with is is a lot and I and I realize how how short of that that I have the capacity for <laughs> and I mean a lot of that is you know you're in this situation and you just sort of adapt but I just think he talks about it in in a really in a really warm way. I don't know. Like he doesn't seem all that bothered by it, especially when you get to the end of this story, which is which is why I decided to to include it today is um he just talks about like the marquee that he was referring to, I'm assuming is the one outside housing opportunities out on Calumet across from the McDonald's. And I like just the fact that he's sleeping outside in a sleeping bag in mid-February and he sees the marquee that said, like, you know, needs some toilet paper, needs some laundry detergent, something. And he just goes to the store and gets it and brings it, even though he doesn't have a, a place to sleep. It's like, I don't know. I think it just goes back to, like, the people that get it, get it. And the people that don't, don't. <laughs> like, like you could have nothing and you're still going to make sure that other people are provided for because you know what it feels like to not have enough and, and to, need, you know, and to be in need. And, you know, you just want to be able to help people. And to, you know, to have not even a roof over your head, but still have that drive to want to help people, I think is really profound. And I think the fact that there are yachts in Valpo, you know, like people that own yacht, why do you own a yacht? There's somebody sleeping in their car. Like, I don't, 
<laughs> maybe I'm just angry today. I don't know. I'm talking about reparations in the first story. And you know what? I don't want to hear about you yet in Valpo. Like, how about you don't have that? And you help people in your community. Like, I don't know. Just seems really freaking simple. And we could all be providing for our neighbors better. And I'm sure I'm talking to the peanut gallery here to our listeners. But I don't know. I'm just frustrated. I just, I just, I, I really enjoyed hearing this man's story. This brought a lot of light. Reagan, what about you? Are you with Willow on this wholeheartedly? Or do you see something different? I mean, uh, I'm pretty wholeheartedly with Willow. I think that the conversation, it reminds me of the conversation around like a maximum wage, um, which gets thrown around every once in a while, but not very often. Um, But I think that's a question I ask myself a lot. And to be clear, I do not make a lot of money. (laughs) I work at, like I work in food service. I'm not making crazy tons of money, but I do like constantly think on like where I am spending my money and my values in comparison to that. So like what that looks like. And and I I think of that on such a small scale. Like I don't think I make $30,000 a year. I don't think I'm quite there. Um, And then, you know, to see and kind of feel almost nauseous because like, yeah, there are people in Valparaiso with the yacht. Like where is that excess? Where are those values? But at the same time, like that's such a difficult, difficult conversation to have with people like one-on-one or in a very general scale of like, oh, do you think that this thing you're doing for you is too much? And like where the politics of being able to have fun and express joy and recreation time and having like valuing those things, like balancing those things with kind of putting your money where your mouth is. Which seems like a segue to a pledge drive that I can't ignore. So I'm going to take it and just say in this season of giving, Thanksgiving and the holidays that are coming up, we would sure love to encourage you listeners to participate in our winter pledge drive by becoming a WVLP sustaining member. And that means you don't just give a one-time donation, but that you um, commit to a monthly pledge pretty easy to do just by going to wvlp.org backslash support. And if you donate at the $5 a month level, you'll get Paul Schreiner's couch music CD. And you know, you get a taste of his beautiful guitar playing at the beginning and end of our show. And I can just tell you that couch music will not disappoint. At the $10 a month level, you'll get a WVLP t-shirt. And what better way to continue to support the station than to boast that swag as you go about your day. And then at the $15 a month level, you can get both the CD and t-shirt. And then you're happy at home and you're happy when you're out and about. So go to wvlp.org backslash support to make your sustaining pledge today. We here at Listen Up Vulcan Project Radio would sure appreciate it. So I want to try something out on the two of you here um, that has to do with the yacht comment in particular, because what strikes me is that he's imagining at that point, if he had that kind of money, and then he breaks out in laughter thinking about like, I think because he's imagining how much he could give based on the fact that given what he has now, which is not very much, what he gives is laundry soap when housing opportunity needs it or toilet paper when housing opportunities needs it. So if he had 
the capacity to have a yacht, that would mean he would have the capacity to give. And it's like, he can't almost imagine uh, what he could give. So he kind of burst into laughter instead. And I don't know, I think what stood out to me here is, um, cause I, I tend to in the past, maybe go in the direction. I, I think I heard the two of you going in, which is like, do you need a yacht when people don't have enough? But I wonder if he's more like, you can have your yacht, keep your yacht, but is it keeping you from actually recognizing how easy it is to give, to share? It, has it separated you from the kind of immediate impulse to give when you see that on the marquee at Housing Opportunities, there's a need? And I guess I'm, I'm wondering about this in part too, because of how he starts the story with talking about how he loves this county, he loves Valpo. And I think when he's talking about, you know, the sidewalks, more sidewalks, more public, you know, more everything for families. And Valparaiso is a really attractive city to be in. And there are constant kind of maintenance happening to roads and sidewalks. The investment that the city is making in its infrastructure is pretty impressive. And I think it's a reason why people are attracted to living here. Um, and I see him enjoying that, at least on one level. He does, you know, go on to say that in addition to that, that seems to mean this is a community that has enough to do more in order to actually reach out to its residents who are in more economic need. Like it doesn't have to be a only serve the middle to upper class. There must be a way to also include those who are living, you know, on, on poverty wages. But I don't hear him, you know, wanting to take away the yacht as much as like just assessing that living with that kind of wealth has somehow separated people from the impulse to naturally and easily give. But let me let me have you talk back at me and see if I'm, I don't know, being too generous or misunderstanding how difficult it would be to be sleeping in a sleeping bag in February. I mean, I want to, I do want to push back a little bit. Um, and this might be, I might be putting this on the speaker more than the speaker is actually saying uh, due to my own personal bias and thought. But I do think that there should be there should be discomfort at the sight of such a wealth disparity. Like when you see people who are so destitute um, or in such a situation where they do not have an indoor or enclosed area to sleep. And then we have people who are displaying like multiple house money. Like from what I understand, I don't have a yacht. <laughs> but from what I understand, like yachts are usually like, potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars that's buying a whole other house like even in this economy that is that is an additional home and we live in indiana so that is an additional home on a lake that you can only really access like two seasons out of the year and it i get where you're coming from allison in that there you know people can have excess things or like live maybe like more decadently um, in a way that is like fine or ethical or doesn't necessarily say anything on you as a person. But I do think like given the contrast, given the, the black and white of the situation, 
that that does say something and it does imply something at least about the individuals who are participating in this like or who are are prioritizing these things it does say something about where your where your values lie and i think that not acknowledging that is is being a little too easy where people don't need to be easy hard on this one like i don't know like can can you have a yacht and still be a good person (laughs) i i don't know it's like i don't know it's just like i keep seeing these like i saw well okay so i saw one tiktok that was like come with me to my lesbian aunt's house for one of her house parties and it was just like a house full of lesbians and but it's like they were so freaking wealthy that it's like I have never felt more disconnected from people in my community in my life by the fact that they were all these lesbians were all driving like Mercedes and like they had all these like expensive like watches and stuff on I'm like oh yeah like I, I don't know that is so nasty to me um so I mean I think it is very good-hearted of our speaker to potentially think like yeah it's okay if people can have you know, like excess things this is how some people enjoy Valpo can can I enjoy Valpo is there any sort of like way that services and resources can be made available to me somebody who can't afford it it's like I don't know I just think that's too kind like I just maybe I'm just done with kindness 2022 maybe I'll be kind in 2023 but like I'm just I don't know it's like is Rihanna terrible because she's a billionaire yes is Kylie Jenner terrible because she's a billionaire? Yes. Is Elon Musk? Yes. Well, he's already terrible. But you know what I mean? It's just like, it's like a cab. It's like all billionaires are terrible. <laughs> like all people with excessive wealth have agency and power in a way that people who do not have those resources will never have the same amount of agency and power to make change around them. And so the fact that like, you're saying like, yes, yeah, some people who have the agency and power can choose to have a yacht and they can be, they're welcome here. I just, I personally, I just don't have room for that in my heart at all. <laughs> like, I just, like, no, that is, it's filthy disgusting to have a second home, $200,000 in the bank, you know, and there are people who, who are not going to have anything this holiday season. Like, that's a disgusting disparity that you, I, I don't know, the, the, the mental like hoop jumping that you have to do in order to still feel like a good person at the end of the day, but still have all of that excess and know that nothing you've done has, has contributed positively to people who aren't as fortunate as you. Like I just, I, re- I really don't think there's room for it. I don't. For me, I was thinking that there's something that this storyteller notices about how wealth cuts you off from your ability to give. Um, so in some ways, I don't think I'm disagreeing with you. And, and maybe I, I think I would like to end with thinking about this particular storyteller and not only the generosity that he has and names at the end of this particular story, but kind of going back to the, if we're talking about tone of voice, thinking here about this storyteller I think it's more, it, you know, he's not really, de- he's not detached. There's a kind of acceptance, but I don't feel like it's resignation. 
I think this storyteller is someone who recognizes his own value in, and that's saying something in a society where a lot of people would pass by somebody sleeping in a sleeping bag outside and intentionally or otherwise dehumanize that person. And I feel like this storyteller in the details that he shares with us about how he, you know, navigates his day to stay as warm as long as he can. And I was really struck by the detail about making sure the phone stays charged so that there's some kind of connection to society, like that that was a real need of his to feel connected and that he's going about his day in the constraints that he's operating under and and finding ways to do that. Although it's interesting that he ends up playing solitaire. <laughs> um, so I you know like this is not, I, I, I don't think that this is something the storyteller wants to be permanent for himself, but I don't want to miss the self-acknowledgement that I feel, that I feel him offering. Well, um, we're grateful to both of our storytellers at this holiday season in which, you know, gratitude takes a center stage. And before we head out today, we're grateful for all the other shows that are on the station alongside of us. And you can find the full schedule at wvlp.org. We particularly want to give a shout out to Morning Black, which stands for Building Leaders and Cultural Knowledge. And this show that airs every Saturday morning at 8 a.m., focuses on the concerns and issues that impact underrepresented communities of color with a particular interest in the African-American African-American communities here in Northwest Indiana. So check it out. And that's it for today. Thanks for listening. And thanks again to our sponsors, Asana Yoga Center at asanacenter.com and Roots Market Cafe at rootsmarketcafe.com. Both are also open for business at their locations downtown on Lincoln Way. Visit their websites to learn more. We here at Welcome Project Radio love to support our local business. And thanks to Kelly and Michael Marakna, who believe in supporting diversity, learning, and growth. You can find us online at welcomeproject.valpo.edu and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to listen to WVLP or support our show, you can make a donation by going to wvlp.org support.